The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I have been wanting to interview my guest today for quite some time because he is a font of knowledge. Mr. Jeff Moyer is the farm director for the Rodale Institute in Kutztown, Pennsylvania, and has over 35 years experience managing the farm at Rodale, and I'm sure has seen many changes. So, Jeff, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. It's a real pleasure to be on your show today. Well, Jeff, I heard you speak first, I think, at the Beyond Pesticides meeting in Cleveland, Ohio, and I was so impressed with the information that you shared. I should let our listeners know that I've been to the Rodale farm a couple of times, uh, once on my own and one more recently on a farm tour with you, And when you drive up to the Rodale Institute and the Rodale Farm, there is a sign that says, healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy animals. And that really sums up organic agriculture, doesn't it? Yeah, it's been our tagline for a long time. We really believe that without healthy food, we can't really have healthy people. And without healthy soil, we can't have healthy food. So while food is the link between our own personal health and the soil, it's really all about how we take care of the soil to enable it to take care of us. Now, is this a novel concept that Mr. Rodale developed? Or, you know, when did we start making the connection between soil health and human health? Well, I think it's a difficult connection for people to make because we we certainly think about food. Most of us, oh, two, three, four times a day we think about food as as we're consuming it. But... In general, people don't think about the link between the food that they're eating and their own personal health, and that's certainly something that you and and the American dietitians have been working on, but even fewer people really try to make the link between that food that they're consuming and the soil that produced it. So that's a more complicated mechanism for people to understand, and they just just don't take the time. So it's, it's not only important what you eat, that's not all that's important to your human health, but your own personal health is directly related to how that food was produced and how we manage the soil. And those kind of connections are something that G.I. Rodale made early on in his gardening and farming journey and has passed that on to all of us in the organic world. All right, let's jump back several decades. If I recall correctly from conversations we've had, you grew up on a farm, but it was a conventional farm, and then you started working for Rodale. So tell me about your life growing up on the conventional farm and how you got to Rodale. Well, our our farm that I grew up on was a very small farm. Mostly what we did was my father worked off the farm. It wasn't a full-time occupation for him. It was really an opportunity for all of us kids. There was five of us growing up there. It was an opportunity for us to work and produce food and, and, and save money for the family. So we raised ducks and chickens and goats, and we had uh, large gardens and raised lots of vegetables that we, we always had on our, our kitchen table. But we didn't really follow an organic philosophy in the production of that food. It, we used uh, chemical fertilizer, and we used herbicides to help manage the weeds. And those are just the kind of things that were very typical 
on a farm in the uh, you know in the 60s as as chemical agriculture was really coming to, to play. Mm-hmm. But when I, I when I got out of high school, I went to school in forestry. I went to be I wanted to be a forester, and in the process, I you know I, I really found a certain amount of comfort in the back to land movement that was taking place in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And it really seemed to fit with the lifestyle that I was interested in pursuing. And at the time, my girlfriend and now my wife was interested in the same thing. And we bought a small farm and I started working at Rodale in the area of organic agriculture and just never left. Mm-hmm. Now, when you first got there compared to today, what kinds of changes have you witnessed? Well, you know, anytime you've been somewhere for over 35 years, you you get to see a lot of change. I, and I, I would say that the biggest change is not necessarily the changes that took place on our farm, although there are many and, and we can talk about those. But really, the, the change has been in how the greater community and the community of consumers have accepted and and really demanded organic products and produce and how that has really begun to grow, blossom, and change the, the way products are presented in almost every supermarket in in the nation. You know, when I first started here and you said you were an organic farmer, people would chuckle, they would laugh. If you went to uh, meetings with farmers or with uh, scientists and you talked about the work that you were doing, you were certainly regarded as an oddity and in many cases thought of as really outside the realm of normalcy uh, as they perceived it. Now, when we go to those meetings, we're we're guest speakers we're often sought out to help in grants and proposal writing because people in the academic world begin to realize that, hey, people really want this stuff. There's a lot of real science behind the, the work that's been done in organic agriculture. It's not all a bunch of crazy people just trying out new ideas. There's real science behind it. And it's really the science of biology. And what we're looking for is opportunities to replace chemistry and chemical systems in farming practices with biological principles. So biology is certainly a legitimate science, just as chemistry is, and we need to work together to try to shift the way our food system is being managed in this country. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. So I remember a series of slides that you showed at the Beyond Pesticides meeting, and one of them was quite startling. It was the difference between conventional soil and organic soil. Yes. And in light of climate change, I think that organic farming or agroecological farming, if if you choose to use that terminology, makes the most sense in terms of this gorgeous soil that's able to behave like a sponge to capture water. Tell me about your research with soil. Well, while J.I. Rodale really coined the word organic agriculture and thought about how he could change the soil to produce food, he didn't really have a scientific background and didn't understand the science that would be involved with changing soil or how do we really manage it to improve the soil and improve the health of the soil. He just intuitively knew that's what he wanted to do but didn't really know how to do it. Bob Rodale really began to take that concept to the next level. Bob was J.I. Rodale's son. And what Bob did was he started looking at the soil as a biological system and saying, you know, if you look at other, well, it's difficult to see what's happening in the soil. You know, we can stand on the surface and look down, but we can't really crawl into the soil and see what's happening. But there are other biological systems that we can view much more readily. 
certainly things that are above ground. We can look at those systems. We can look at biological systems that take place in coral reefs or other places where we can actually immerse ourselves in the system and look at it. And whenever you do that, you start to see that there's a certain efficiency that takes place in these biological systems that we can exploit. For example, in our, just to take, think of our own human bodies, if we begin changing our diet and exercise, we can actually improve our health. So there's steps that we can take to change the biology of our bodies to improve our health. Why can't we take that same thought process and express it in terms of soil? Well, we can. So the idea that soil is simply a media to support plant roots while we pump chemical nutrients into it is sort of ridiculous. Really, if you think of the soil as a biological system, then the more we exercise the soil, the more we work the soil, the better it gets, which means we can have almost unlimited production in terms of crops and still improve the resource which is the soil, while we're doing it. For example, if you exercise, your heart doesn't wear out. It gets stronger. So if we think about the soil in that same way, we want to have something on our farm here growing on the soil 365 days out of the year. We are always planting, harvesting, replanting, harvesting, turning cover crops under, stimulating the soil in many different ways so that we can move from that image that you remember seeing of really depleted soil uh, in a conventional system where we're just basically putting seeds in the ground and pumping nutrients into it and hoping to get a crop out versus managing the soil in a way that we've improved the health of the soil so that any seeds we put in there, any plants we put on the soil are going to grow. Let's talk about yields because, you know, the message that I think a lot of consumers as well as farmers get Mm -hmm. through the conventional agricultural literature, you know, the magazines that are developed through the chemical companies tell farmers that in order to feed the world, and they have a very important job to feed the world, which can be debated, that farmers here in the United States, if they want to contribute to feeding the world, then they need to rely on biotechnology and the latest advancements in chemical agriculture in order to have the greatest yields. And yet the yields that you found on your farm with organic farming methods are superior to the conventional, correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. What What we've been able to document very well on our farm here is that the worst case scenario in organic systems is we produce an equal amount to the conventional system. Right. In bad years, when we have really unstable weather patterns, the organic systems actually produce more. And that's because we've sort of mitigated the problems that are experienced by the system when weather patterns shift. So, for example, when there's a drought, organic systems do better than conventional systems. So we can actually produce as much food with an organic system as we can with conventional. Now, I will say that if the goal of our food production system is to feed all the people in the world for the next five years, the next ten years, we can do that with a conventional system. The reality is we have to feed people in this world for hundreds of years, thousands of years possibly. We don't really know. We know that on our farm here in southeastern Pennsylvania, we've had Native American peoples living on this land 8,000 years ago. At least that's what... Uh, archaeologists and anthropologists from our local university tell us when they look at the stone tools that they find and they date those, they're saying 8,000 years ago there were people farming on this land. 
Now, they were using stone tools and fire to change the landscape so that they could plant the crops that they wanted to grow. So it was very rudimentary farming, but it was farming just the same. And we know that they needed the soil. Now, today we're farming with tractors and, and other tools to clear the land and change it and, and manipulate it so that we can grow our crops. But we still need the soil. Mm-hmm. 8,000 years from now, we don't know what farming is going to look like. We don't know what kind of tools they're going to have. I'm sure we will look as, as rudimentary uh, to those folks as Native Americans might look to us today, looking back through history. But we know that they're going to need the soil. And if we continue to farm with the kind of practices that we're using in conventional agriculture today, which include the types of things you mentioned, genetically modified organisms, uh, intensive herbicide and synthetic chemistry applications, we know that we're destroying the very base that produces our food. And if you look at the reports that have come out from groups like uh, the World Food Organization and at the United Nations, when they look at the, at the world and say, globally, how are we going to feed this population, the, the only thing that they come up with as a, a possible scenario is that organic agriculture is the only solution. Conventional agriculture cannot, is not, and, and never will be able to feed the world's population for that length of period of time. And really that's what we're looking at is a much more uh, broad vision of what time means in terms of agriculture and feeding people. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that with organic systems, we've got better results during times of drought. We should also talk about erosion that comes from these torrential rains that many of us have been experiencing. How does the soil perform with regard to erosion when when you've got a more conventional system versus one that's employing organic methods? Well, here's what happens. When you take soil and you basically beat it up with chemistry, you change the way the soil reacts and responds to other forces in nature. One of those certainly would be water. In an organic soil where we're working on sequestering carbon and building the organic matter content of the soil, what we're really doing is we're creating a sponge where that soil can take in and absorb 10 to 40 times the amount of water that it does in a conventional system. Wow. When you take that, if you're recalling, I I know it's a very vivid photo uh, of the two systems of soil management that were really taken five feet apart from each other in some of our research plots where one has a 1% organic matter content and another one has a 5% organic matter content, which doesn't sound like a lot going from 1% to 5%, but it was, it's, it's large enough change that you could see it, visually see it in the slide image that I put up in the PowerPoint presentation. Well, the, the water really reacts differently in those soils. If you take a handful of those soils and put them in, in an aquarium or a bowl of water where they can sort of just plop in there, the conventional soil basically dissolves and turns into silt on the bottom of the, of the, the bowl. Mm-hmm. The organic soil stays intact and looks like a lump of soil that just soaks up water. That's yeah. because there's a lot of, of mycorrhizal fungi in those soils. They're, very, they're, they're living soils. They're alive. There's billions of microorganisms in those soils that are functioning in very complex ways to help us manage soil, manage nutrients, manage root growth, all the things that we need to sustain ourselves on this planet for a long period of time, you just can't get that in conventional soils. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Jeff Moyer. He is the farm director at the Rodale Institute. 
Jeff, I have to ask a question about something that you mentioned earlier, and that is carbon sequestration. That's a really difficult concept to understand, at least for me, because it's not like you see carbon, so it's hard to imagine it being sequestered. Tell me, carbon sequestration 101, what does organic farming have to do with climate change and capturing carbon? Well, carbon can exist in a bunch of different ways and in many different places. We can certainly have carbon in the chair that you might be sitting on or the desktop you might be working from as wood. Wood is carbon. Carbon can exist as coal, which we're burning right now to generate electricity or heat our homes or whatever we're using the energy for. Carbon could be the diamond ring on somebody's finger. Obviously, different forms of carbon, and we can all visually see those the differences in those carbon sources. Well, carbon can also be a gas or it can be a solid. It can be sequestered or stored in the soil, or it can be released up into the atmosphere where it causes problems in the form of greenhouse gas. And what we're seeing in the organic farming systems is as we increase soil organic matter, the main component of that organic matter content change is carbon. Hmm. So not only can we take it out of the atmosphere with plants, you know, when a plant grows, it's taking carbon out of the atmosphere, it's building this biomass, and then we're taking that in the form of a cover crop, and we're turning it into the soil. We're, we're taking all of that carbon material, putting it in the soil where it can be sequestered for a long period of time. Now, the other thing that we're seeing with organic systems, because we have something green and growing on the surface of the soil year all year round, even in the winter here in Pennsylvania, under the snow, we've got plants that are alive. You have all that root mass that's down there. Everything that you can see above ground, there's just as much below ground on plants. So all of those roots, all of that is carbon, and it's all being stored in the soil. And in organic systems, not only are we sequestering more carbon, but we're sequestering it at greater depths in the soil, which means it can't be released back into the atmosphere very rapidly. So we're sequestering it for a long, much longer period of time, which is important, if we're, certainly if we're thinking about future carbon markets and how we might be rewarding farmers for sequestering carbon as, as taxpayers or people who might be buying those carbon credits. We want to make sure that that carbon is sequestered for a long period of time. We don't want to pay somebody to sequester carbon for a day, a month, or a year. We want to sequester it for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, down in the soil. You know, you bring up a couple of points that I want to touch on. One is I, I remember when you were speaking in Cleveland and you, you mentioned the fact that somebody had flown over your farm. They were getting ready to visit you and they said, well, Jeff, I can always know when I'm getting close to your farm because there's always something green there. Right. And the surrounding farms had exposed brown soil. Right. So when I live here in the Midwest and when I drive during certain seasons of the year, I don't see a lot of green cover crop. And you've taught me to know that that's not necessarily the best farming system. So what would you recommend to people to always have something planted? Absolutely. If you look at soils across the Midwest or, or, or here in the, in the Northeast, soils are designed to be covered with something green and growing. All of that microbial life that's in the soil that we've been discussing, all that mycorrhizal fungi, all of those critters that are down there need energy. Their only source of energy is the same source of energy we all have, and that's the sun. Unfortunately, they can't live in the sun. In fact, if you turn the soil over and expose them to the sunlight, they die. But they need to get energy from the sun, and they do it by attaching themselves to the green living roots of plants. 
when there are no green living roots or, or plants that have green living roots on them on the soil, they die again. So you, in a conventional system, even if there are, and there is some microbial life there, obviously, that light, those living populations rise and fall dramatically throughout the growing season. Like in the winter, there's none, and in the summer, you know, now you're starting to build up your population. In, a, in an organic system where we've got those green roots down there in the soil, those living roots uh, year-round, that microbial activity, that all those microbes can get energy from those roots so that they can sustain their populations even through the winter. So coming into the spring, when we need those critters to get to work for us, they're right there ready to do their job. You know, if you're an athlete and you spend all winter laying on the couch, not participating in, in your activity, and then got up in spring and were expected to do a really good job at whatever that sport might be, you would probably be... Uh, and not very satisfied with the performance that you would give. On the other hand, if you exercise year-round and stay in shape, and we see that certainly with professional athletes uh, today, they, they, they work out year-round, and so they're ready to go. The same thing is true with the soil. We want the soil to be working hard year-round so that when we put our plants or seeds in the ground, we're ready to go. Now let me ask you something from a home gardener perspective. I always wonder about this. Should I be pulling all the weeds that are growing around my crops, or should I let that green matter stay or pull them out and let them uh, just lay and degrade on top of the soil and act like a mulch? Do you have any suggestions about that? Well, as a home gardener, you know, and I'm a home gardener as well, I don't like to see weeds in my garden. I like to see things kind of neat and, and tidy. Right. Um, what I tend to do with my weeds is I, I pull weeds and I compost them and, and bring those nutrients back to the soil in the form of compost. But what I do is as soon as I harvest a crop, I plant either another crop or a cover crop. Okay. You don't want to just harvest your broccoli and let the soil be bare or harvest your sweet corn and let the soil be bare. As soon as you're done harvesting it, get something reestablished in the soil that, that same day if you can. That's it might be something as simple in the summer as planting a crop of, of buckwheat. Uh -huh. germinates very well in the summer. And as soon as it starts to flower, you can turn that back into the soil, add carbon, build your soil organic matter, put in some of the compost from the weeds that you might have pulled out, and get another cash crop started or another harvestable crop that you might want to eat, uh, you know, fall broccoli or cabbage or more string beans, whatever it is you want to plant. But get a good rotation going uh, and constantly keep planting something. And when you don't want to plant something that you want to maintain, put a cover crop there. Oh, that's great advice. Thank you. I want to also touch on another topic that you mentioned, and that was rewarding farmers. And when I last visited your farm, I asked a question about the farm bill, because as we know, that's coming up. There's a lot of negotiation going on. Yes. And the question I asked you was, if you could change one thing about farm policy, what would it be? And your reply at the time was, well, we need to reward farmers for making the transition to organic farming. And this idea of rewarding farmers for taking action about conservation efforts or, or making that transition away from toxic chemicals to a more holistic agroecological system, you know, I'm worried, frankly, that our new farm bill isn't going to address those rewards. Well, it certainly is a concern. I think, you know, as, as I would look at the farm bill, and, and we call it a farm bill, the reality is it's a food bill, mm -hmm. and so there's many different things that we can do. One is certainly reward farmers for producing nutritious food. That's not something we reward them for today. Mm -hmm. we, we really should stop rewarding farmers for 
overproducing commodities that no one needs or wants. Right. And start rewarding farmers. If we can't reward them for transitioning to organic, let's reward them for other societal benefits that they can do with the resources they've got. For example, if what we said was we want you to, to manage your farms so that we get less soil runoff, less flooding in your neighborhood when it rains, but we want farms to do that. We want better soil infiltration. Well, how do you get that? You get that by following organic principles and practices, whether you're certified organic or not. You start to plant cover crops. So let's reward farmers for that. So if every farmer across the Midwest had something green and growing on their field all year round, even if they use chemicals to establish them, oh, what a huge impact that would have on the soil and on society as a whole. And then once farmers start to do that, it's not as big of a leap for them to move in the direction of organic because they've already taken those first steps. Mm-hmm. So I think as a, as a food bill, we need to reward farmers for, for producing food. The other thing we need to do as consumers is we have to recognize that we vote with our food dollars every day, whether we buy in a restaurant, a farmer's market, or a grocery store. We're purchasing food, and we're telling farmers what it is we want them to do. And right now, what we're doing is we're telling farmers we want the cheapest food we can possibly get at any cost, and we want lots of it. Right. And we're getting that. What we need to do as consumers is start paying attention to farm bill, the food bill, whatever it is we want to call it. Start re- asking farmers to do what we want them to do and reward them for it. Jess, this is probably really unfair because we only have a couple of minutes but I really would like for you to touch on your term as chair of the National Organic Standards Board and maybe touch a little bit on the myth that somehow we shouldn't have government involved. And I feel really strongly about the importance of certification, and I wonder if you can just touch on a few highlights from your tenure on that board. Sure, I'd be glad to, Melinda. It's not unfair at all. I I certainly enjoyed my tour as a board member on the National Organic Standards Board and as chairman of the board, and, and I'm very proud of the work that, that our board did while, while I was seated on it. I understand why some farmers, some producers are concerned about involving the federal government in their production practices. On the other hand, if we don't, and before we did have a federal regulation on, and, and definition for what organic was, a federal set of practices, we had many people who were saying that their product was organic and it wasn't. That's very disconcerting to consumers who are trying hard to support a particular type of farming practice or who want to have a certain type of food product delivered to their to their table if they can't trust that the word actually means anything. So until there is some ownership of that word in, in the world of marketing, it became meaningless. So we as a community, the organic community, and there was dissension among that community, but at general, as a community, we petitioned the federal government and said, look, please step in, help us develop this regulation, create a federal law that demands that anyone who wants to use the word organic in the marketplace has to follow this set of practices and standards that allows us then to convey that message to the world and to consumers that they can trust that this product really does represent that type of food production system. Because we really want something that's different from from the norm. 
Jeff, unfortunately, our time is up, and I want to tell you how much I have greatly appreciated your experience and your interpretation of what organic farming truly means in terms of public health. I want to close absolutely by thanking you for being my guest and also to thank our listeners for joining us and a reminder that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Jeff, we'll be sure to have uh, www.rodaleinstitute.org linked to the KOPN website. And again, thank you so much for your service and for all of the information you've been able to share with us over the years. My pleasure. I enjoyed being with you today. 